0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Armchair Scholars Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Dean Lamont. He's a kinesiology professor from St. Mary's College. He has such an interesting background and story. We talk about sport and the role it plays in society and what we can learn about ourselves from looking at sport from a historical context. We really think you're going to enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show.
1: Yeah, so this is it. Great. Yeah, thank you
0: so much for not only agreeing to sit down with us, but opening up your home to
1: us. Of course. So, yeah. yeah, Nick and I are both very excited to have this conversation. Good. We are. We appreciate it. And so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, if we typically like to get started just by trying to understand a little bit more about your background, how you got here, so if you're open to sharing. Sure. Of course. I was born in San Ramon,
2: California, not really. I was going to say, that's a classic Saint Ramon accent right there. It is, yeah. 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 No, um, my hometown is Plymouth in uh, England, uh, which you probably know is one of the major ports in the United Kingdom. Uh, My dad was in the Royal Navy. And so he's actually a Scot, and my mother's from Plymouth. And so they met and married there. And so I was born there. My brother was, uh, my other brother was uh, born there as well. So that's my hometown. Although, because we were a military family, we traveled a tremendous amount. I think I attended something like 16 schools when I was growing up. Wow. We would certainly be moving every two years sometimes, uh, even more frequently than that. So we moved around to the different ports around the around the country with my dad, uh, you know. So my dad and his wife and the two boys in tow, and occasionally a dog. Um, Although most of the time, uh, during my formative years, I I was in Scotland. So on the west coast of Scotland, my father was in the Polaris program, uh, the nuclear submarines. Uh, So most of the time was was spent there. And so most of my education was there, not entirely, but but most of it.
1: What was that like, jumping from school to school for you? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, um... Sort of a full range of emotions, Uh, first day, traumatic, I suppose, and then... Many traumatic first days. Yeah, but tons of traumatic first days. I think, you know, it's overwhelming. You know, you can remember yourselves, Mm -hmm. those those first days of of school, right? Um, And a new school every year and a half, two years, Uh, which ended up um, making me get used to it. And I know we're going to talk about sport and, and sport was sort of the, the savior, if you like, because, um, no matter if you were the, the new kid, the short kid, the kid whose accent was different. Um, once you got on the field, it didn't really matter so much. Hmm. And so I, it's always been a big, big part of my life sport. Um, but yeah, we've moved around a, a tremendous amount. Um, but, I, th- I think it helped, uh, in the, I think it was a good thing in the end, um, mm-hmm. to, um, I don't know if it was self-confidence or just cause I had to do it so many times to introduce myself and make new friends.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That's a lot of experience in different places too, which yeah. is kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Lots mm-hmm. of different experiences, you know, from, from the Southwest of England where I did primary school up to, um, the the far west coast of Scotland where I did my secondary education, very, very different, Mm. distinctly different places. And then, uh, as I mentioned, my father was, um, working uh, in the nuclear program and we were in the industrial Northwest of England for a few years. Um, and that was the industrial Northwest of England, very blue collar working class communities, tough, you know, no nonsense, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you get the edges knocked off and Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So it, it was good. When you first went off on your own, what age were you at? And like, what was the circumstances around you being, you know, kind of the independent you for the first time? Was that university or was that, um, what was the
2: circumstances? Yeah. So, um, we were, Living in in Scotland, and um, I was finishing school. I was finishing school, fifteen and a half, sixteen years old. Uh, I was not academically inclined. I was inclined to play all kinds of sports, but I was not particularly academically inclined. Which turns out to be sort of amusing, right? Yeah. yeah. In in the end, at the end of the story, oh, that's changed, right? Yeah. A little bit. Um, and so I I was finished with school. I was finished with school, and um, I traveled back down to my mother's hometown to uh, start work. Um, so between the ages of 16 and 24, I was just the working guy um, in the UK and then overseas as well, and and playing sport in different parts of the, the world also. Um, but yeah, I didn't start college until I was 24. Uh, sort of a different, different path. And that was okay. Mm -hmm. That worked out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What did you, what did you do between 16 and 24 before you started college?
2: I worked in my hometown uh, for about four years until I was about 20 uh, with a company that worked with the Royal Navy. Okay. Um, And so we sort of followed the Royal Navy around to different ports. And then at 20, I just decided to leave. I wanted to travel, so I came to Florida, and I played some soccer in Fort Lauderdale. Mm. Um, And then I went back to England, and then I came back to the United States, and I went to San Diego, and I played some soccer in San Diego. And then I went home again, and then I went to the Middle East, uh, my dad, as I mentioned, and I'm looking over there because the folks can't see, but there's a cottage uh, <laughs> attached to our property, and we have an extended family. My 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 parents live with my wife and I here in Alamo, uh, so they live in a little cottage there, and they're in their eighties now. Um, but um, they had my dad had um, gone to work in the Middle East okay. while. Uh, He was in the Royal Navy. I'd got certified as a diver with the uh, the Royal Navy and the Royal Marines whoa and um, So I thought that it would be a bit of a lark to go out to the Middle East to live And so I was a certified diver. Yeah, where can you dive? (laughs) Yeah, and so I ended up working in the oil industry in oil exploration and salvage uh, (laughs) for a couple of years which was interesting A little dangerous but very well paid Um, and the good thing about the Arabian Gulf is that it's not like working in uh, the North Sea which is tremendously cold and very deep Uh, the Arabian Gulf Gulf is very warm and fairly shallow Um, so most of my time was spent in just in scuba equipment Um, but yeah so Wow, I I did that. That is so. I had
1: no yeah, idea about yeah. any
2: of it. Yeah. So yeah, I worked in the oil industry uh, in Bahrain. Um, so all in the Gulf, all around the Gulf: Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Dubai. That whole that whole region. Yeah. Okay,
0: so then how do you make your way from scuba diving in the Middle East back into education? Yeah, I know. <laughs>
2: um, so I'd also been playing rugby. Um, so. I think academically and uh, sportively, my interests have always been eclectic. And mm-hmm. I I always, always uh, played a broad range of sports. I, I suppose the main two were rugby and football, soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I played them throughout my uh, school life. And so when I arrived in the Middle East, I played both Um a more significant experience was with rugby playing for Bahrain and we got to go on tours, uh, in the far East, um, up to, for example, in Cairo, capital of Egypt. And we, we, I actually was a guest player for Cairo and we came to the United States and played on the East coast in the United States, um, which was very fun. Um, but, um, I got injured. Mm. So I injured my knee. Uh, in Bahrain when I was playing there and I needed treatment and so um, the there, there's an institution called the United States Sports Academy, which is headquartered in Mobile, Alabama and a part of what they do is um, they provide usually to developing uh, world nations um, coaches sports mm-hmm. medicine uh, physicians athletic training staff um, Oh wow. So to bring on usually their olympic programs because that's very important in the developing world so i'd got injured and i went to i had to go for treatment to the national stadium um, in, in bahrain to get my my knee seen to and I, and i was probably at this this stage 23 okay um, so i'd got injured and i walked into the training what we would call in, in the united states the training room right And lo and behold, I was surrounded by Americans. Um, And we started talking about rugby and other sports. And so I asked them, how did you find yourself in Bahrain? And I found out that they were uh, sports medicine types. Let's just say it that way. And I think sort of a light bulb went off. You know, I played serious sport my whole life. um, But probably for the first time then... Almost certainly, because I got injured, mm-hmm. I thought, well, you won 't play the whole of your life, but you love it so much and then I was then I was encountering these guys who had a career in sports, so that light bulb, I think went on, and then before I knew it, I was in the Midwest at a university in the United States studying sports medicine.
3: Wow oh, yeah.
2: cool <sighs> yeah, so I just you know I talked to these guys, they were great, very supportive. Um, You know, fortunately, I had the credentials. I had just enough exams passed when I left (laughs) school at 16 to get into. uh, I went first to, there were three universities applied to. So I only applied to three. It was different in those days, right? (laughs) Um, And the top three sports medicine programs were at Oregon State, Arizona State, and Indiana State. And Indiana State responded right away and said, you're in if you want to go. And I said. I'm not quite sure where Indiana is, but I'm in. And so before you know it, there I was in the freezing cold in Indiana. Yeah, And then, then, um, Indiana was wonderful. The the people were just wonderful and they, I, I felt like I'd been adopted by multiple families and they were really, truly super people to me. Um, I don't want this to be disrespectful, but, um, And it was a terrific time. Um, But I thought a lot of things. But I thought, maybe I should go to California. I've heard a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And so I transferred out to California, finished up my undergrad, did my uh, master's degree at St. Mary's College, not really knowing what was going to (laughs) happen next. And then I did my PhD at
1: Berkeley. Um, Yeah. What was that transition like? I mean, I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. how you had all these... Quick adaptations to different schools growing up, and now you just like got thrown back into the academic scene yeah. when you were 24. What yeah. was that first couple of years like? I mean, Indian into California must have been no big deal, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, 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 no, it is true. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what we were saying earlier about, um, in this case, my formative years, you know, all that transitional stuff, and frequently, right, having to make new friends, adapt to a different home different schools, different teachers all the time Mm -hmm. uh, probably served me well when I transferred from the the heartland to the crazy left coast, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, What was the transition like? I'd never been, as I mentioned earlier, I'd never been particularly academically inclined. But when it had something to do with something that I was interested in, the human body, physiology, human performance. Mm-hmm. Then I became interested. Mm-hmm. So it was school; had never been hard for me. In fact, it was boring, and I never really paid attention. I didn't do homework. <laughs> My students aren't going to hear. Us, <laughs> no, right? no, no, um, no. we'll um, cut that. It's all good. <laughs> um, so I was a I was a poor student. Um, I got I received passing grades, but I was just mm-hmm. a uninterested student because I would not found anything that intrigued me. Um, But then I did Mm -hmm. at at university. I didn't find it at all hard uh, through my undergraduate years, through my master's program, and then I arrived at Berkeley. And that was different. Mm -hmm. That was different in all kinds of different ways. When you do a PhD at Berkeley, it's not you don't just specialize. You do specialize, but you have to do it. There's a language requirement. Now, I had taken French in primary school in, in the UK. You can imagine it was pretty basic stuff. Killer, uh, a you know, those kinds of things. And, um, and then all of a sudden, I realize at the doctoral level at Berkeley, there's a language requirement. You must have a research language. It can be Russian, if you'd like, or it can be German, or it can be French, Okay, so I'll do French. Well, that was a bit of a grind because I wasn't really interested in that. You right. know, I wanted to mm. do my stuff. But no, you have to have a second language. Um, and I needed to learn how to read, to, to read, translate 19th century Victorian French <sighs> prose into, uh, into English. <sighs> and so that took me a couple of years yeah. to, to get through that
1: requirement. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is so...
2: <laughs> yeah. So, So Berkeley was tough. That was the first time at, at any educational institution that I was uh, stretched. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good, which is the way it should be, right?
1: Yeah. I was going to say that was probably a really good challenge at that challenge. time because yeah. like you're getting back into that really um, deep interest of something and really applying yourself and then it's like asking you, how bad do you want this? Exactly. You know? Yeah. And I did, and uh, I, I I
2: remember the dis- distinctly the day that I passed uh, my oral exams for the PhD, uh, and and it's right up there among the most important. They, I, I remember leaving the exam room, and I don't know if you know what happens for PhD oral exams. Okay, so they lock you in a room with anywhere between three to five senior faculty members, and at Berkeley when I did it was it was a long. Oak table in the basement of one of the academic oh, halls, and you could be there from anywhere between two to four hours. And so, um, and you practice. You have you know you have the mock exams, mm-hmm. but then there's, you know there's no getting away from it, and and you have to pass. Yeah. And and people don't always pass, and you can imagine after having done four or five years at Berkeley in a grad a doctoral program, and they say you failed. And that happens. Not very often, but it happens. So it's it's tense. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking away from campus to to get in my car to come home to Margot, And I was I said to myself, don't get hit by a bus now. This would not be a good time after you just passed your oral. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be a PhD from, from Berkeley, right? Um, no, it was a great place. And um my program there was wonderful, I worked with a, a mentor, mentor, sadly she just died, her name was Roberta Park, and she was an internationally known historian. So I had shifted to the humanities side of, of my field, um, which I love. I had moved away from the sports medicine side and shifted to the, uh, principally to history. Um, and so, while I was at berkeley there was there were so many wonderful and still are many wonderful historians so i didn 't just take uh, coursework and do research in my own department you, i I was required to go and work with other uh, faculty on car- campus so there i mean it was sort of a i think a high tide high tide time at Cal in the history department when I was there you know Leon Litwack was there the uh, the great his- African American historian, uh, Larry Levine was there in, in, in history, a modern American historian, um, to excuse my dog. Sorry. <laughs> um, Sheldon Rothblatt, um, uh, British historian and just all kinds of people. So I, I spent a bunch of time in, in history. And then also, um, I did, I did, um, seminars in the School of Public Health at Berkeley with a wonderful wonderful man he has also just died seems to be a theme um, yeah. Len Duor actually a psychiatrist but worked in the School of Public Health he 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 had been uh, a part of the JFK administration mm. um, Oh wow. and he worked and he did a lot of important work um, he was the the father of what's called the Healthy Cities program and so he'd worked with uh, the United Nations as well so a, a tremendous intellect, and so I was blessed to have time with him. Um, and then I also did research in the Department of Near Eastern Studies um, with Ann Kilmer and Wolfgang Heimpel, mm. and so I and, and, and I, I I published some stuff on uh, ancient Near East physical culture after working with them. So it was just it was fantastic. fantastic time and i got to go to college football games and watch the golden bears you know on the weekend so it was all this crazy academic stuff and then that cathartic release kind of thing yeah um up at memorial stadium on saturdays yeah what do you think brought on the
0: shift from the like physical side to the humanity side
2: you know i'd always been um interested in history Mm -hmm. even though i wasn't particularly academic you know um Sometimes people ask you, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, of course, I wanted to play for Manchester United, um, <laughs> and that didn't quite happen. But um, but I've always been interested in uh, archaeology, ancient archaeology. I was fascinated by, you know, Egypt and the, and the pyramids and um, ancient Greece, the Parthenon, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff.
0: Um, I've been recently getting into a bit of it myself. I'm still pretty novice, but yeah. um, like – Really fascinating stuff about the discovery of um, like sites like Göbekli Tepe and some of that stuff. It's just been super interesting to read. So maybe maybe offline we can talk about more. Sure. Of that. Yeah. One of
2: one of the one of the things that has been wonderful. And I landed at St Mary's College, is, as you both know, which is just over the hill. You know, from from Berkeley, and it it was it was terrific to be able to land there because I always I joke I suppose that when you're fini- you finish. People who are just finishing their PhDs are sort of like um, um, brand new minted quarterbacks, right? Mm-hmm. When you're playing at college, you kind of never know where you're going to end up. You know, if you're a quarterback you're coming out of college, you might get drafted and play in Tennessee. Or it might be Chicago. Mm-hmm. Or it might be San Diego. Well, not anymore, but Los Angeles or wherever, yeah?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, if you're going to play in the pros. When you finish your PhD, you don't know where the jobs are mm. that year. You might be going to North Dakota State or you might be going to the University of Florida or you might be going to Wisconsin or you might end up at St. Mary's College if you're really, really <laughs> lucky. And we were, Margot is a Bay Area um, woman, so we were able to
1: to stay here. Was that connection since you did your master's there? Or how did you end up following?
2: Yeah. So, I left St. Mary's and went to Berkeley. So, mm-hmm. uh, two years at St. Mary's and five years at Berkeley. And then um, they had an opening and they called.
1: Wow. Wow. So, I was like... Everything works out, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: And, and I've loved it. I've been there for 25 years and it's it's been... Tremendous. And what I was going to say is um, one of the really cool things about St. Mary's College, I think, for the undergraduates for certain and also for the faculty is um, the what we call our January term program, um, which can be either in residence or it can be travel. So essentially what happens is um, every undergraduate is required to take four January terms. It's a month long course of study on a very on just one topic. So very intense for a month. Um, and for the last, I don't know, eight years or whatever it is, I've taken students to Turkey, Greece, and Italy um, to look at the archaeological. Remember I said I was, as a boy, I was interested in archaeology. <laughs> Bringing it full circle. Yeah. Um, so we get to go to look at some of the great historical uh, archaeological sites where ancient athletics, where ancient sport happened. So oh, wow. ancient Olympia, we get to run... Uh, at ancient Olympia where the ancient Greek athletes ran in the first Olympics. Wow. Uh, we get to go to the Flavian amphitheater. Um, we call it the Colosseum right there in the center of Rome where the gladiatorial events took place. And we, we arranged for them to go under, underground to see where oh, wow. the, the animals okay. and the gladiators, uh, you know, we're sort of prepared to come up and put on this tremendous, as it turns out, political show, which we can talk about later. But hmm. um and then we also went uh the first year I, I took a Jan term group, take about fifteen to twenty students with me for two to three weeks. So we're we're gone for most of the time. Um the first year I took the group, we went in through Istanbul to the site of ancient Troy. Wow. Um you remember the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, which is is it's kind of difficult to get to, but it, it's mm-hmm. really worthwhile. And uh, so, we uh, one of the other things that we do with our undergraduate students at Saint Mary's, um, they're all required to take four what we call collegiate seminars. Uh, so one a year, essentially, um, and it's a great books program. They read the great books of Western literature, all the way from the ancient Greeks right up to. 20th, 21st century um, texts, uh, and of course we start, almost start, with Homer's Odyssey. So um, the students got to read from Homer's Iliad and Odyssey on the, on the, on the ramparts of uh, <laughs> the reconstructed city, citadel of, of Troy. So, And one of my students was a classic student who, because the Odyssey, the Iliad in the Odyssey, we think, was usually sung rather than just spoken. Oh, wow. And so she sang uh, some of the verses in ancient Greek as we stood at at the site of ancient Troy.
0: Aren't those moments just so crazy when you're sitting there and you're realizing, like, you're in the place where something originated so far away and it's being performed
2: in the way that it was probably most accurately heard Mm -hmm. in the time that it was created. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. And she was crying as she was singing, by the way. Wow. Uh, So it meant something to her. Yeah. 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 No, and I think it it touched everyone. Um, And if you remember the movie, of course, there's Mm -hmm. the great battle scene, right? Where they come up from the ships up to the city of Troy. Mm -hmm. And as you stand on the ramparts there, you can see out toward the coast where if there in fact was a battle of troy you know a siege mm-hmm. yeah. that's where they would have been
1: wow yeah that's crazy yeah
3: <laughs> yeah
1: that's really cool though and so this is a piece of where you really dove into sport again still you you spoke about how you learned about the history of sport yeah what was that kind of like um it's sort of
2: you know, being trained in history, you know, there are all, all kinds of questions, right? And and why do we care that this stuff happened sometimes millennia ago? In the case of Troy, right? Why mm-hmm. why why do we care? Well, I think there's knowledge for knowledge's sake, sake, and I think that's valid in and of itself. Um, so we do. Historians are trained to um, uncover. The what happened, mm-hmm. right? The, so we call it descriptive history, right? What describe what happened? Who was there? You know, who were the men, the women, and children who were involved? How many were they from the upper classes? Were they the working
1: classes? What was right. the date?
2: What was the <laughs> yeah. date? Um, are there any any remnants of the event still available to us? Those kinds of things. Uh, which is great and important. And and I've written work that is purely descriptive in nature, just telling the story, you know, just telling the story of these now long dead people Mm -hmm. um, about what happened. Um, The much more, I think, and that can be terrific. That can be great in and of itself on its own, right? This, This description of past events. But, the crucial part for me always is the ana- the an- analytical mm-hmm. why did these things happen? Mm-hmm. Why did these things happen? So why were people motivated in the case of Troy? Why did these allied Greeks travel so far um, to try to take this? Citadel that was Troy, you know, why what would what were their motivations? What was in it for them? Okay, so the so the analysis piece is crucially important and then the other piece that I think um, Is important too is to think about is there anything to be learned from what happened and why in the past? Is there anything that we can learn? um, And apply in our own situations from what has happened in the past. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think I I, mm. I agree. I think that, you know, learn, there's no doubt that there's things that were known in the past that we've completely lost touch with mm-hmm. and that we need, you know, some good analytical discovery on what we can how we can bring those things back into our life, especially mm. in an environment in today's like culture and world where a lot of the things that maybe they had or were tapping into from like a spirituality standpoint or Mm -hmm. physical standpoint are being numbed by technology or anything like that. So
2: it feels like what you started with is especially true. And that is this idea. And George Santayana, you know, this American, Spanish-American philosopher, the the famous quote, right, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it, uh, Mm -hmm. is timely. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wonder sometimes if a lot of the answers to these dire problems that we have today that these 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 problems existed before and were deeply thought about and solutions may be found yeah um but they've been forgotten Mm -hmm. Uh, so i think the study of past human communities can be very uh worthwhile for lots and lots of reasons yeah Uh, that's why i uh, in part, that's why I enjoy it. I think because mm-hmm. there is a there is a pragmatic, practical aspect, or there can be, to it as well. I don't think that's the sole motivation, mm-hmm.
1: but mm-hmm. I, I think it's important. But yeah, that's not emphasized enough. It feels like because. Well-
2: we were talking about that at the beginning, right? Yeah. When we were talking about a high school education and a, and, a, and a college education, sometimes it's a matter of going through, checking the boxes, and then you don't really stop to think about why am I learning this, all mm-hmm. this stuff? Why are they quizzing me on this? Why are they testing me on this? Um, and some of it might be just so that you can be a better citizen, so, so that you know ab- about where responsibilities and freedoms meet. Mm-hmm. um which seems timely.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we can know plenty of details, we can know the descriptive details about like the civil war, but if yeah. we don't know why right. it occurred, then almost like what's the significance of that?
2: Because you know? it it I mean, today and we're sitting here in mid-October 2020 and um I don't know how you're feeling, but I I think a lot of Americans are feeling nervous Mm -hmm. uh you mentioned the civil war i mean i don't think there's going to be another civil war i don't know how that would look i think it would be disastrous of course Mm -hmm. uh, violence on that scale but i think i think there's a tremendous amount of tension and anxiety in our in our country i mean and you're a young man i don't know where your heads are are with this for me i feel very very concerned about some of the things that i i see happening in our country and i'm an immigrant Mm -hmm. you know and and a citizen an american by choice and i and i'm alarmed at some of the things that i've seen it just in the last couple of weeks Mm -hmm. so i don't i don't know where you are and your age cohort are Mm -hmm. with things
1: i think it's very similar for speak to speak for myself at least just to hear that um Like, that is getting brought up more, that there are talks of, like, a civil war.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Failed state is a term I've heard thrown around, like, the the United States is, like, on their decline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know all the validity behind those types of
2: statements, but, I mean, we're not doing well. (laughs) I was especially... I think dismayed. I was dismayed, ju- I mean, just this week, was it, or the end of last week, when uh, this plot was uncovered to um, to uh, capture, put on trial, and maybe execute a governor uh, mm. of one of our major states, one of one of um, Mr. Trump's political opponents. In Michigan, in, right? In Michigan. Mm-hmm um and i found that to be especially alarming that there are paramilitary militia groups who would even consider planning something like that mm-hmm. um you know to take action against duly elected politicians representatives of the people is, is alarming and i mentioned my janterm trips and we spend a lot of time in greece and i've had the great good fortune of making friends around the world and of course i know mostly americans here but the bay area is a diverse and cosmopolitan part of the part of the world and there are lots of people from lots of different places around the world here in the greater san francisco bay area so i have tons of folks who weren't born here one of my good friends left terrace is greek mm. and he grew up in the 60s and 70s when Greece was controlled by a military uh, junta. And guess where he is now? He's here, you know, he's here in, in, in the United States. Um, I was alive um, during the um, British Argentine War in the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. over the, ostensibly over the Falkland Islands. Um, but there was an international coalition formed because um, a, a military uh, junta, again, had taken over a democratically elected country. And forgive me if my Argentine history isn't you know, fully up to sp- speed, but an uh, international coalition, I think, was petrified by the very idea that... Um, a military government could replace a democratically elected mm. um, yeah. government um, mm. and it, it's concerning because there's there's real echoes of the past here mm-hmm. you know there's real echoes of the past um, and i' and i've heard I experienced it first time with argentina and and the u k and then talked to Left terrorists about you know heard about the Uh, what it was like in Greece and how so many people fled one can imagine. Um, But, and and then I I talked to Holocaust survivors who talked about what it was like in Germany in the 1930s when an elected politician, um, an elected politician, remember Adolf Hitler Mm -hmm. elected to power by the citizens, the free citizens of Germany, which was an incredi- incredibly sophisticated modern state in the 1930s. Of course, it was um, handicapped by the hangover that was World War I, but none- nonetheless, a place of high culture, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Engineers, artists, novelists, um, and then it changed. And I've talked to these Holocaust survivors and they said, be on guard. Be on guard. It can change very quickly. It can change very quickly. Um,
0: I mean, Portland and Seattle are two great examples of other situations where it's something you would think would be so, like, you'd think it'd be written in a story mm -hmm. and not really happen where, you know, People from what, what I heard was the, um, obviously what happened in Seattle, the uh, militia group took over a few blocks and, mm-hmm. you know, people were killed in that circumstance. And then also the I think it was the mayor of Portland was being th- like his life was being threatened sure. as well. Sure. And they came to his apartment building and like trashed his lobby or yeah. whatever. The
2: And people were disappeared, right? People were yeah. bundled into the back of, of, of SUVs and, and were just taken off the streets. Yeah. Uh, so this is America and, and, and again, there's echoes of the past,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, there's echoes of the past and, you know, in, 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 in Nazi Germany, political opponents disappeared and were killed. Mm-hmm. Groups became identified as the dangerous other and there was a solution. It's. it's I, I don't know how it is for young, for young people, but for me, it's alarming. The place we've arrived. Mm.
1: It is, and just to know that the statement "history repeats itself" exists mm. shows that, like, before Adolf Hitler, there was something similar that we probably could have learned from. Yeah. If we really applied yeah. and understood history, and again, it's. Almost a cycle, yeah, and it is alarming just to hear you really emphasize those words from those Holocaust survivors is yeah scary because this stuff yeah. does seem i mean that night when uh, in twenty sixteen when Donald Trump got elected i'm it felt like it was like that
3: mm-hmm. that
1: things changed, and
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's uh it's a weird time, especially right now, with everything. I stop to think and I'm just I'll ask somebody I'll be like, can you like just stop and think about like what's going on in our life yeah. right now yeah like we would have never imagined this five years ago last year yeah
2: it does seem very changed and um, for me it's become actually intensely personal because um, the the rhetoric that I've been hearing uh, coming out of this administration and some of the actions at, at our southern border are alarming. My wife is Mexican-American she's a brown person um which makes my son half brown <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: um,
2: they're the other for 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 many many Americans they are the other and 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 that scares me and, mm-hmm. and it's we should not be here mm. we should not and i think there's a there's a um a real heavy responsibility on your generation shoulders. Now, um, I I think 18 to 25 year olds, only 40 something percent of that age, age cohort voted in the last election.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm.
2: If that happens again, I think two things, um, it could be disastrous for the next four years for the nation and our relationships with other nations. Um, Progressive democracies, um, but but if that that does happen, um, sometimes you get what you deserve, mm-hmm. which which might seem harsh to say, but it's true. If you don't if you don't vote, Yep. Yeah. I
0: mean, we were in a, you know, I've heard the the statement before maybe that Donald Trump wasn't the president that we wanted, but he's the president that we needed to wake us up and get us back on track as a, or deserved. Yeah. Yeah. President, we deserved Mm -hmm. to get us on back on track to realizing, you know, maybe reassessing some of our values and what's important and where we need to be putting our efforts towards, you know, rebuilding the United States as a community of people who are also, you know, a a power state in or a, place in in the in the world um Mm -hmm. and yeah i agree i think you know our generation does need to start reevaluating where we're where we're headed because it's going to be a lot on our shoulders and we're going to be raising the next generation below us and we need to make sure that they have the the right values to continue to take us forward and there's a lot of a lot of weight but i'm also optimistic good because you know (laughs) there's I've met so many incredible people that I can't not be. Um, and I believe in the power of humanity and I think that we just have a few, a few outliers out there that, you know, bad apple attempting to spoil the bunch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, I think.
1: And they're, they're very
2: loud right now.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but no, there, and, but there uh, is yeah, a way God, out.
2: God bless your optimism. I think it's tremendous. <laughs> and I, I, and, um, yeah, and and let let's have that optimism come through in the next couple of weeks because uh, we're running out of time on 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 a significant number of these issues. And I know, and I think anyway, for a lot of young people, my students, when I talked, and one of the big things on their radar, one of the big blips on their radar, is climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we that the 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 science that is climate change does not seem to be resonating. In the halls of power, right mm-hmm. now, uh, there seems to be denial of that science. Um, I suspect I know why. Uh, right? Uh, there may be a little money behind it. There might be, um, <laughs> but I don't think we have very much longer left to seriously address. Yeah. This catastrophe. This. This catastrophe that is coming
3: yeah Mm
0: -hmm. i mean even just the i I don't know the exact stat but there was some kind of um incredible statistic brought up when uh, after like two weeks of quarantine in los angeles county Mm -hmm. with the decrease in carbon emissions just in the air and the quality of the air in the city just from two weeks of limited driving remarkable right mm -hmm. remarkable yeah and if we can't look at that and be there's your optimism <laughs> right. There it is. It's coming keep back it there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's I mean, we need to take that data point and be like, okay, there's something there and people need to start really exploring it and talking about it more. Yeah.
2: And it might be that people feel it is so overwhelming uh, that they don't know where to start and exactly mm-hmm. what you said, I think. That's very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Look, just over the course of 2 weeks, look at you can see the sun.
1: <laughs> you can breathe better.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And this goes back to the whole history thing, though. If, if we're not going to, like, make a step to do something, it's just going to stay this way for a while. And then it might repeat itself until there's actually some type of firm change. Yeah. Feels like it.
2: hmm Feels like it.
1: So amidst all this, I wanted to ask, what is the role of sport? And especially how the role of sport has played, like since COVID too. Like, what are your thoughts just about everything regarding that?
2: Um. Yeah. What do, does 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 sport intentionally or unintentionally have a a role in a in a democracy or, mm-hmm. or a community of, of people? What have the what have what has its roles been in the past? Is there anything to learn from what has happened in the past? You know, one of the, um, one of the things that we see all that, or I, I, maybe I hear and see it all the time, is, is, is folks say things like, I know a lot of people are disappointed in the NFL right now. A lot of people. Are, and they're not watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm told. I don't know. I haven't looked at the data. Um, and when you ask them, they say, I'm I'm, I'm done. It's too political for me. I, I let, Mm -hmm. let, let's keep what? Let's keep sport and politics apart. Can't we just have a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, right? Mm -hmm. Which is sort of silly as it turns out because sport has always been a political vehicle from the very, very beginning. You remember I said that I take students to, uh, to Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Jan- in Jan- in some January, not every January. Um. And, and we visit Olympia, ancient Olympia, the archaeological site of of ancient Olympia, and 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 that was um. That was a um, a key site uh, in in Greek antiquity. It really was um, pivotal in Greek civilization. What happened? over the course of about a week when the program was at its longest the ancient Olympic program was at its longest maybe five days was incredibly important to the Greeks for lots and lots of reasons religious reasons military reasons cultural reasons but also is very very important to politicians uh, kings tyrants Um, and they would themselves if they could compete And try to win at Olympia or send representatives on their behalf to Olympia to try to win. And if they won, they would um, mint special gold or silver coins with their likeness as king on one side. And then, of course, the famous olive wreath of victory on the other side. And that would be the coin of the realm they would use. And so they were making a statement, a political statement, Intentionally. Because those original, those original games, those original Olympic games, were very martial in nature, military in nature. And to win, you had to be very big, strong, fast. You, know, you had to have physical prowess, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you could win, you were sending a very clear message. Remember I said I did um, research in the Department of Near Eastern Studies. One of the societies that I studied was uh, ancient Sumer one of the earliest uh, human civilizations, actually, Uh, famous for uh, the first civilization to use writing as we would know it. Mm. Um, And they they were a a system of monarch, a a, a monarchy system. And king in the ancient Sumerian language literally translates as big man. And so you became king if you were the biggest, Mm. strongest, fiercest warrior. (laughs) And so the tyrants of ancient Greeks, Performing and winning in these games, which were martial and military in nature, we're sending a very clear statement to other Greek city-states. We're bigger. And stronger.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Imagine what I can do. If I can win this spear-throwing contest or chariot Mm -hmm. race or wrestling contest, imagine what our military's like. Yeah. Hmm. Don't mess with us. But, Perhaps even more importantly, the political message that was being sent home was intended to cement uh, the king or the tyrant's position. Um, We know this, right? As Americans, we know this. Um, There's a little survey done by Sports Illustrated. It, It asked Americans, which was the most important sport history event in u.s history Hmm. and it was one event that most americans identify overwhelmingly one event uh disney made a movie about it it was during the winter games oh the miracle the miracle on ice yeah right the miracle on ice where our college kids Mm -hmm. defeated the, Russian, the, Soviets, the Soviets, right? Sorry, mm-hmm. Yeah, Not wow. everybody thinks it was the championship game. It wasn't. It was a semi-final game. Mm-hmm. They had to go on and beat Finland. But it was a really tough time in the <laughs> United States, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Late 70s, petro- gas rest- uh, rationing, uh, a real economic downturn. And these young college kids do the unimaginable against the mighty Soviets. It's sort of the late Cold War era. Mm-hmm. They were our big enemy not just in sport, but in economics and military, right? Mm-hmm. And our college kids beat them. What a moment. It was this patriotic moment that brought us all together, mm-hmm. this, this, this wave of good feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing ha- used to happen in antiquity. When your athletic representatives do well, and think about our own Colleges teams or our hometown team, if they do well, there's this wave of good feeling Mm -hmm. throughout the community. Yeah, Yeah. and so and 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 that cements the position of the status quo. In this case, in antiquity, the king. Mm -hmm. So he's sending political messages all over the place by competing and winning, perhaps himself or a representative. Um, of his administration, we'll say it that way. Um, so, sport has been political forever.
3: Yeah.
2: Forever. It's politics and sport have been intertwined forever. Roman emperors, <laughs> during the time of the Roman emperor in the early centuries AD, um, if you had been alive in the imperial capital of Rome with the two biggest sporting venues. And one of them really still survives. If you ever go to Rome, I don't know if you've been to Rome,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, but you've got to go to the Colosseum. I've been. Right? Yeah. And it's right in the it's right in the heart of the imperial city. Yeah. It's right in the center. And right next, just a short walk away through the Forum, is the Circus Maximus, mm-hmm. where the chariots used to run. Mm, yeah. And then Caesar's residence is above it, right? Mm-hmm. This is the imperial center. And right at the imperial center of Rome are two sporting venues, the place for the chariot races and the gladiatorial contest, which was sort of the, the. you know, they were the sporting heroes, if you like. They were infamous. They weren't really famous because they occupied a very low social class. They could never escape their the, their social rank. In fact, they were very separate from ordinary Romans. But em- the emperors provided to the people the ordinary slum-dwelling Roman free bread, free dole, the grain dole they called it, and free public entertainment. And hundreds of days in the year. They could go to theatrical Performances for free. They could go watch the gladiators, the animal hunts in the Flavian Amphitheater. They could go and watch um, the circus, the chariots race. And they weren't alone. We have records, and I think this is an exaggeration, but we have records of 500,000 Romans cramming into the Circus Maximus to watch cir- uh, chariot races. Wow. Probably more like 250,000, but still. Mm-hmm pretty impressive yeah. right mm-hmm. but those citizens ha- were entering, entering into a political agreement with the emperor there was an exchange going on here they called it a munera, an exchange the emperor provides you with free food and free entertainment to fill up your days and in exchange you are obedient subjects hmm. sport has always 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 being political We talked about Adolf Hitler 1936 Berlin so-called Nazi games, right? Mm -hmm. a propaganda political um, Message being sent to the world about the Aryan power of the German people And of course we know what's coming next right Mm mm-hmm Soon thereafter, within three years, World War II starts, in in Europe anyway. But not just a message being sent to the world about Aryan superiority. Look at our youth. Look at our Aryan youth. Aren't they superb? And they were superb. They won, uh, there's not an official IOC medal count, but it's an unofficial sort of press medal count. But they won the medals going away, the Germans. They were superb. They were superb. Except there was one little wrinkle. And his name was Jesse Owens. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that later on. But mm-hmm. the message was clearly sent about the power of this reemerging giant nation. And Hitler purposely chose sport to be the political vehicle. He also did the same things as Greek tyrants had done and Roman emperors had done. He used the um, this tidal wave of good feeling about Aryan victory in the Olympic Games to cement his position with the German people. Hmm. Very, very powerful. Yeah. Sport and politics always, always, always been intertwined. So to suddenly say in the early 21st century, I don't I don't like sports and politics mixing. It's silly. For that. It's silly. Yeah. It's silly. It's silly. I mean it's usually, usually used I by those in power to try to project or maintain power. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's probably what's what people are objecting to actually. Bob Costas has a quote, you know, Bob Costas, right? The MBC mm-hmm, mm-hmm. announcer, he has a quote and he goes, you know, it's not really that people object to sport and politics, uh, mixing. It's really that we object to you making political statements in sport that we don't agree with. That's really what mm. the problem is. It's, it's not, we, everybody knows that, that, Sport is and always not everybody knows but sport is a political uh, a political vehicle
1: yeah but people would people would agree with it if they were spreading the message that they wanted to be spread and they'd be okay with it
2: well that happens all the time
0: mm-hmm, I mean mm-hmm.
1: not exclusive to sport yeah That's
0: every every venue for somebody you know preaching their message
2: well right yeah but I mean i I, I think sport is probably the most visible. thing Visible, um, I'm keep on using the word vehicle, but it seems to fit. I mean, sport Mm -hmm. is this vehicle and it's incredibly, I mean, it's omnipresent, isn't it? And Mm -hmm. there's no escape in sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we used to read some interesting research done, um, media research done, when we used to read, newspapers, we don't really read newspapers anymore, but 85% of males who opened a newspaper in the morning turned to guess which section first. Not (laughs) business, not the front page, the sports section. Mm -hmm. There's no escaping it. It used to be one ESPN. ESPN started broadcasting in 1979 and it was ESPN. Today it's
0: ESPN, ESPN two, ESPN three, ESPN classic, ESPN Deportes, ESPNU for you, the university. I mean, right? Yeah, it's
2: it's and which is sort of symbolic. It's there's, you can't. Mm-hmm. It's twenty four seven. Yeah. Right. It's it's always on. It's it's always on. There's there's no uh, there's no escaping it. Seems mm-hmm.
0: to me. So today, mm-hmm. where do you think, as far as You know, to rebridge bridge the politics, sports and like today's culture, where do you think with some of the major issues we're dealing with today, um, sports can – I'm going to use that optimism again. Where do you think (laughs) sports can be making a positive impact and do you think they're doing a good job? Oh, okay. Because there's been a lot of initiatives like with the NBA and the jerseys and –
2: Well, we would (laughs) – we would and actually we do – you know, we we like to embrace the mythology of sport, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we like to, you know, and I talk with my undergraduate student, and, and sometimes it's a tough road because uh, my home department is kinesiology. And so if a student is interested in exercise science, if a student is interested in a career in the sport industry, It's quite often the case that those students have, in their 400th years, have had a lot of experiences with sport, like from youth sport into scholastic and even into collegiate sport. And certainly if they have found themselves playing at a high level in their high schools or their clubs and then at college, that means almost certainly for most of their life they got lots of positive psychological strokes from being, mm-hmm. they were good,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and they got a lot of positive feedback. Yeah. It made them feel good about themselves and about the sport and about their coaches and the travel they did, right? And so usually most people just love to embrace that mythology of sport, that it is sport participation is unequivocally positive, mm-hmm. that it, for example, builds good character, which I don't agree with, and the research Absolutely doesn't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for every example of you you could um, give me of good whatever that means, pro-social behavior
3: mm-hmm.
2: in sport, I'll come up with a counterexample of antisocial bad behavior um, by an athlete.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Nick, you and I have seen some of them on the field mm-hmm. in Definitely. person in high school sport, right? Mm -hmm. violence high school players stamping on the necks of their opponents right yeah yeah is is that good character um lance armstrong yeah yeah knowingly took what banned and illegal drugs to try to win does sport and then did build a ton
0: of lying about and it? And then
2: did a ton of lying and tried to destroy the lives of those who were just telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Does sport build good character?
1: Build ego. Might can can and, and e- which can be a very bad thing.
2: And if you if you have a, if you are a high and, and one of the worst things to be as an athlete is to be a a singularly high ego athlete mm-hmm. because it leads to the withdrawal of effort, yep. things like faked injury and cheating. You want to be high ego and high task if you can be. That's right? mm-hmm. what the research says. Mm-hmm. That's where the best athletes are. That's where the best athletes yeah, are. They're not sense. all other reference. That every that 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 I assess myself on how I do against others. That's my. That's how I decide whether I'm um, good or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That can be very problematic in mm-hmm. youth and and for young people it can be. The truth is that sport participation, the research bears this out over and over again. Sport, the the, the consequences of sport participation are equivocal. It depends. It depends on the norms of behavior that are established by the coaches, for example. Hmm. And there's some fascinating research since you wanted to you wanted to ask me an optimistic (laughs) research and there's some, there's some seminal research, uh, sheriff and sheriff did the famous robber's cave study back in the 1950s. I don't know if you've Mm -hmm. ever read it. It's really caused it's it's group dynamics research. And what they did is they took a bunch of boys. I think they were 12, um, during the 1950s and the sixties, the old summer camp thing was very big. You know, kids used to go off to camp for the summer. I mean, that still happens sometimes. Um, so they picked up these bunch of boys, bused them to this camp, uh, robbers' cave camp in the Midwest, and had them and put them into teams and had them bonding with one another. Okay, doing all kinds of team activities and 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 they bonded these boys and they gave their teams names: the Rattlers, you know, mm-hmm. the Eagles. And then the researchers, sheriff, set up this competitive between group. Scenario um, things like tug of war, baseball. Okay, carefully constructed, um, vigorous competition for one prize mm. a scarce commodity. Okay, so there could be, w- and there was friction one prize, one winner, everybody else losers. Okay, one <laughs> prize, vigorous competition. Friction up to and including physical violence between the 12-year-olds who had never met, okay? But when this hyper-competitive environment was established by the researchers, we saw this friction and up to and including violence, and the kids had to be separated by the researchers Um, The camp supervisors (laughs) And then Sheriff does something really interesting Which is going to lead to an optimistic answer There you go And you'll be able to relate to this Both of you I know played on uh, sport teams As you were growing up And you can relate to this part Sheriff then introduces What's called a superordinate goal Superordinate goals Can only be accomplished If individuals or groups Work together Cooperatively to achieve achieve the task, to conquer the task. So the two teams that had previously been at each other's throats were given this superordinate goal. They bonded together previously, (laughs) and they achieved their goals. And so much so that at the end of the study, they all wanted to go back together home on the same bus. They were buddies. Right. One of the things that I don't think we do a good enough job of, um, when it comes to sport, is explaining um, sports' true potential. Not that it can all that it automatically works like this, but Nick, you rem- you played at De La Salle High School, right? hmm De La Salle High School is a diverse community. Boys coming from all kinds of backgrounds right faith traditions certainly economic background Mm -hmm. you have kids from very affluent families and then you have kids who are living below the poverty level so all kinds of different children right Mm minors who come together on these athletic teams at Salle and lots of other great educational institutions too they are presented with what sheriff would say is a superordinate goal. We can only win Ebal, the championship, if we what? Put aside all our differences, find our commonalities, and work together. That doesn't mean that all of you are gonna be on the field for every game, but you have a role, and we can move together. And I think if you blow this up a little bit, it's really <laughs> timely for our nation.
1: It is spot yeah. on left and right.
2: right. We are an incredibly diverse nation made up of people from, you know, who their national origin is different, their faith traditions are different, their socioeconomics are different, ethnicity, mm-hmm. race, <coughs> you, you name it, right? Urban, suburban, male, female, name it, whatever it is, Um but it requires leadership, a great head coach, mm-hmm. uh, a superordinate goal or goals that we can achieve together by cooperating. It doesn't feel like where we are right now. Yeah.
1: That superordinate goal is not agreed upon and it's really not defined.
2: No. I think we've arrived at a place in the United States. Uh, I, te- I teach at a Catholic college, Nick and you both went to a Catholic high school my son went to a Catholic high school Um, my son started at a public high school um there were probably many reasons why he left there and ended up at De La Salle which he was a joy Um, but I I think we have to hark back to sheriff again and the robber's cave study I think what has happened in the United States we've arrived at a place where hyper competitiveness, individualism has become valued above everything else. It mm. is every man and woman for their self. And if you can't succeed, too bad for you. That's not community. Mm-mm. That's not community and, um, but I, I, I just see it. I just see it and I, I think we need to change of course. Um, good leadership is required. Um, valuing community is required, I think. Mm-hmm. To
0: bring it kind of back to your, um, the ancients, if I may. I've been recently reading Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, right, and he speaks very often of the idea of the hive and how he does. how people must contribute to the hive, and every bee is essential to the hive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we have that mindset as a nation right now to your guys's point. No, people don't feel like they're contributing and it's creating this. I'm a, you know, lone wolf instead of a beehive mindset. And I think that there's, you know, he was an emperor of Rome and he was a leader and a stoic philosopher. And that was a, you know, as a leader, having that mindset and seeing every person as valuable and really bringing everybody together like that, I think is, um, you know i'm I'm in very much so agreement that that's something sorely missing from but
2: I think vital to how we're going to correct a lot of the issues and what's fascinating, and if you were a saint Mary's undergraduate, you read Marcus Aurelius um his meditations, which is tremendous stuff mm-hmm. uh, of course, Marcus Aurelius is criticized, remember he was an emperor of a slave uh a, a, a slave owning yeah empire yes um <laughs> But but your point is very well taken. Um, how do we how do we have workers in a capitalist society and not alienate them mm-hmm. and make them feel that they are just very small cogs in a wheel, um, tiny bees in a beehive, and mm-hmm. insignificant? It's a yeah. It's a great it's a great question about uh, in, an individual's worth in a community, how that is how that is assigned and you know there's there's a tremendous amount of talk I think going on about this now and there are some really pretty clear markers um, when it comes to value. You know in the old days a CEO would, would earn I don't know a hundred times what one of his line workers might take home in a year right now it's <laughs> Thousands and thousands. I don't know. Is that good? Is that okay?
1: Doesn't seem like it.
2: Um, is it okay that a basketball player makes? I don't know. What are the numbers?
1: Twenty 40 million. million,
2: twenty million a year, and a a firefighter makes. Well, you know, it depends, depends where you yeah. live in the But yeah, but not that. Is that <laughs> right. is that yeah. is that where we are? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean we could polls.
0: a lot the CEOs and the athletes if we took down how much they were making they would still be okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's kind of the comedy of it is that, you know, every it's that tug of war between the capitalists, you know, sure. efforts yeah. of the country and
1: thinking about it as a beehive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the individualistic culture, I feel like growing up I was taught that that's the culture that we're in yet like it was just accepted um it's kind of it is promoted in a sense it is. that you need to do this because you need to get to this certain spot for yourself well,
2: but that's also one of the functions of sport in the United States mm-hmm. and i I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't want us to talk about modern American society and, and not realize that, you know, the vast majority of American children are enrolled by their parents for some pretty clear reasons in youth sport. I mean, tens and tens of millions of them every year into youth sport. Um, Right. Almost whether they like it or not, Mm -hmm. they're going to be in it and they're going to be in team sports usually uh, and early. I mean, by age six, something like 70% of boys are on a sport team, which is, it's sort of telling. Now, why are they there? Why do their parents enroll them and sometimes spend a ton of money on this? (laughs) And why do we dress them up like major leaguers when they're playing peewee? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Somebody's making money out of this is probably the answer, but... um, why do we, why is youth sport and has been certainly for, you know, most of the 20th century, things like little league and Wee football were introduced in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, why are they such a big part of our culture? And I think in part the answer is that, it, that, that sport is a socializing vehicle. It is intended to teach children the way our society works. It's intended to teach the core values, like competitiveness, mm-hmm. actually winning. That's what it's – yeah. it, it, it's, it's less about the competition. It's more about being a winner, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to be a loser. You want to be a winner. So no. it's about learning how to win. And, the, and then so there's – there, we know in a capitalist society that being competitive, winning is highly, highly valued, and that there are some approved ways – in our society, that you can win, right? Mm-hmm. What do you have to do? You have to be industrious. You have to be committed. So in the youth sport context, it's like, even though you might want to go and watch a movie or hang out with your friends, you're on this team, mister, and mm-hmm. you're going to show up. You're committed. And you're gonna, when you go to practice, you're going to work really hard. Okay, and you'll get better and you'll be a winner, right? Sacrifice for the group. That's learned in sport, right? Yeah, I think. As I think yeah, back, I remember I that. think so. You know, sometimes if you're in a baseball situation and you're in like a, a youth team, you could maybe hit a home run, but sometimes it's not the right thing to do. You have to sacrifice the chance to get in that personal glory for the team and move the runner around, right? Throw down a bunt. And that's that carries over, I think, into ordinary everyday life,
1: right? Mm, yeah, that's so true.
2: And so I think youth sport is really an important vehicle that teaches our society's values and the behaviors that you need to get on. That's a Victorian term, the Victorian's always, used. it's important to get on you know, to achieve, Mm. to be better than the previous generation, to be a winner, okay? And so, we socialize children, much more boys, by the way. Girls are much less involved, more now than ever, but girls are much less involved uh, in youth sport than our boys. And, of course, we socialize them into certain sports and not into others, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. We, you know... You really can't have girls doing rugby, for example. Right. It's too too rough. <laughs> too rough for them. Yeah. It's too rough. Uh, we don't want them doing football. Why not? It's too rough. Come on. R- not really. Because yeah, you can't have girls doing foot, right? I was a rugby player all my most of my life. Rugby, for me, and for lots of, it was a rite of passage, right? It's mm-hmm. where I went when I was a young male, to what? Establish and prove my masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's true, right? Yeah. And there's rites of passage in America too, baseball
3: mm-hmm. for
2: boys, right? Yeah. Now, what happens if girls start playing rugby? Where am I going to go? <laughs> when they start, what am I going to do if they do my stuff? Where do I go to establish my mask, improve my masculinity if a girl can do it? Doesn't that make rugby feminine? If girls can, so we're not going to have that, and forever girls, females have been more socialized into sports that you can play in a skirt, right? Mm-hmm. Like tennis. Now, of course, there are exceptions, but generally, it's true, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true, and so we, we, we. Um, We reinforce gender roles through youth sport. We socialize boys towards certain sports and behaviours, and girls into volleying at the baseline in tennis, or ice skating. I'm generalizing, but you get the point. Yeah, and it's been it's been like this way for generations. And, And in fact, not until very recently, where there are hardly any opportunities. I mean, talk to your grandmothers for women to play interscholastic or intercollegiate sport in the United, not really until 1972 when Title IX is passed, Mm -hmm. uh, which is just an extension of the Civil Rights Act Mm -hmm. that says you may not discriminate on the basis of sex when it comes to Programming in uh, educational institutions in yeah, the U.S.
0: A lot of people think that's a NCAA rule. Yeah. It's a federal law. It is. It, and it's just applied. And
2: it's civil rights legislation. Yeah. And yeah. It's, a,
0: it's just applied at the collegiate level that way. But, yeah.
2: Yeah, just exactly. You know, the athletic department is a unit of the university just like the Department of History. Mm-hmm. Right? Just yeah. like the HR department. Mm-hmm. You can't discriminate on the basis of sex. But we do in intercollegiate athletics but we do there has you know and and the penalty for if if an athletic department is shown to be discriminating discriminating on the basis of sex say in intercollegiate athletics the big punishment is they get uh, their federal funds withdrawn which is a death sentence (laughs) essentially how many universities have ever had that happen to them since 1972 are they all in compliance no there's no no way
1: no Mm -hmm. no
2: what do you think about
0: um the difference in as you know comparing individual sports versus team sports specifically for youth Mm -hmm. um and maybe more of like the benefits of an individual sport as somebody getting to not have anybody to blame but themselves and kind of work on themselves in that way, like mm-hmm. struggle with losing at your own fault. And then, and then comparing that to somebody maybe who's getting in straight into team sports and maybe hasn't worked on, do you think that there's anything, um, any benefits to one way versus the
2: other? Uh, with, um, well, so, the way I want to answer that is mm-hmm. to say, first of all, I'm not a sports psychologist, but I do have an opinion about it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. More of a lay opinion than a professional opinion. I think um, maybe you're you, – I think what what you're suggesting is that there uh, there might be more advantages in uh, individual sports. At a young age, yeah. I guess maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not so sure about that these days Okay. because I think what has happened to team sports is that it's become very specialized and that in essence, uh, of course there's still team sports and there's maybe a bunch of people in the pool or a bunch of people on the court with you or on the grass, on the, on the field. Right. Um, but what I've seen happen in modern sport is the team sports is that, um, the position, the responsibilities mm. of the positions have become more and more and more specialized, and if you're not sure about that, you could. There are certainly there are some team sports you just look at the players and you know what their responsibilities are,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Um, more and more and more. So it's almost like, um, um, at least the way I think about it, it's almost like that you have a a, a collection of individual athletes, right, mm-hmm. playing in a team sport. Yeah. That's sort of a, um, no, I definitely see what you're answer, but, um, yeah, but I think I can cut both ways. So if you, if you, if you have success, you individually, if you're in an individual sport and you have a lot of success, um, you could feel it could be great for your self esteem, but if you lose, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It goes the other way. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's this, if my students could do they here he goes again you know he's <laughs> he's hammering away on that that equivocal word again it depends yeah yeah it really depends it's it's I, I, when it comes to sport I, I don't I think it's dangerous to be unequivocal it really sport participation it depends it depends on the environment uh, established goals mm. set those kinds of things
1: I wanted to go back to. The current um, political climate and sport. Yeah. So I, it's really cool to hear you lay out how politics has been so intertwined with sport for so long.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, talking about how different sports have made comments politically. Yeah. Um, I was telling Brendan that this has been something in international football for so long the say no to racism. Sure. Um, but yeah, here in the US, it's definitely way more emphasized now. Do you think that there's a responsibility that they have to do so? And then I was talking to Brendan last night mm. too. What what happens in a year? Like do these right. names get taken off the jerseys? Right. Do we just go back to normal? And then what does that mean?
2: Yeah. Um yeah, so it's it seems to me that it is pretty recent that there has been this mass athlete involvement that they, that, that the majority, and in some cases, all of the athletes are standing together, which is not entirely popular Mm -hmm. as we know in, in our nation today. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that, um, many athletes who started out as members and residents of marginalized communities, often communities of color when not all, um, but when they made it, they left, they left and, uh, and they didn't come back. Of course there are exceptions to that mm-hmm. and that they did not take, uh, mm-hmm. again, not all of, not mm-hmm. all of these high profile athletes, um, you know th- th- these high profile athletes are corporations and you know I, I i've heard it i've heard it said in many different ways i'm selling you know i'm an athlete but i'm selling sneakers i'm selling t-shirts as well and so if i take a political position as a tiger woods or a michael jordan that's likely and i think this is more true than ever that's likely to what alienate 50% of the population, which is actually fifty percent of potential customers
3: mm-hmm.
2: so i 'm a co- i 'm an individual i 'm an athlete but i 'm also a corporation so I'm, I may have very strong feelings about it but i 'm not going to publicly state them mm-hmm. um, Does that make them bad people? Does that make them you know I've, I've, you know i 've heard athletes called much worse than that athletes of color who uh, have not been visible supporters of their communities uh, and are geographically dif- distant, but also, in, you know, socially intellectually distant as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have a responsibility? That's a tough one. Depends. It's a tough one. It's <laughs> yeah, a really, yeah. really tough one. Does you know? Do do do, do protests? To be candid, the protests by basketball players and and baseball players, are they really going to make a difference to the structural, major structural issue issues that we have and in
0: this the is country? the kind of the you're mm. taking the position I took with our my conversation with Nick yesterday, which yeah. was great, love it, yes. do mm-hmm. it, yeah, but that's Moral. not that's not really what this is about. It's not about. X, Y, and Z basketball player putting a nice, you know, supportive yeah. thing on their jersey, um, and there's a much deeper, solu- like, problem that's not being solved by that action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm with you on. that I teach one. a
2: course, uh, and and the title of the course is Sport and Social Justice, and and what we do is we work with a, a collection of organizations in mostly in Oakland. Uh, some. Some great places doing some tremendous work, uh, East Oakland Boxing Association, Soccer Without Borders
3: mm.
2: and others. Um, and you know, our students go on site and see what 's going, and these are tough parts of Oakland, okay And these organizations are trying to use sport to get kids off the street to get them involved with tutoring programs, to get them to understand about nutrition. Um, to get them to try to finish high school to to try to help find the mentors so that they won 't have contact too early with the criminal justice system and on and on and on and on and on and all those kinds to try to find to mitigate and find solutions to these to these problems in the inner, inner city uh, which is great, but is it? Is that a band-aid? Are we expending our time and energy in the right place? Now, it's hard to say it's not good because you're making a difference mm-hmm. in the individual life of a immigrant Latina in West Oakland, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, through soccer, she could find a mentor and a team, help her learn English more quickly, and all those things. But is it really addressing? The structural challenges that inner city America has, um, having to do with things like food insecurity, um, the, the the presence of gangs and drug use and interpersonal violence, that 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 can be really attacked from a meta scale. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like we work from the wrong end, mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to band-aid and take, you know, help individuals, which is worthy and moral, but... Surface. Should we be up yeah. here? Mm-hmm. Is that where Should we be working with legislators, with politicians, yeah. rather than working down here at grassroots, or do we have mm-hmm. to do both, or, yeah, so... I take your point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna let Duff out because he's yeah yeah, oh, yeah of course messing up your thing. What are you doing? You Is he okay? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Are you sure? Yeah, people love that. Check
3: <laughs> I Hey,
0: I know you just want to be out here part of the fun
2: is that fire on
0: no no I don't think so I just see what looks like flames. Yeah. I think our light is kind of
2: what do you want to do a few more minutes guys what how are you feeling
0: yeah yeah we can do like a few more minutes you yeah. have, to do start you
2: have, um anything else what did we talk about
0: is there anything that we that you put, put on the agenda on? or you had ri- written down some notes on you wanted to share
2: what did I what
0: We do always one follow up question as well, so at the end oh, we will yeah. we'll, uh, we'll okay. circle back to that. But
2: sure. Um, no, I think.
1: Uh, well, you've said it's been awesome.
0: Yeah, I think you shared some really valuable sure. perspective.
3: You're
1: welcome. Stuff that I've fun. never really thought about. Or like yeah. Really pieced together, I think. <laughs> that thing, um, you know, the the thing that we were talking
2: about earlier, Nick. Is is personal for me. We talked about football, you know, mm-hmm. the English football, uh, and the comparison between professional soccer here and there and professional sport. I mean, football, the English Premier League, of course, is king mm-hmm. in 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 the UK. Um, it is the professional sport, um, mm-hmm. so it's the equivalent of, by lots of measures, the NFL is king here. Yeah. So with the greatest respect to baseball and basketball people and basketball is pushing, but NFL is pretty much where it is. Mm -hmm. But I, I just love thinking about, you know, that, that, that the, the irony of of American professional sports. And, and (laughs) I was talking to my son, Jack about that, who, you know, he works for the the now Las Vegas Raiders. And, um, you know, the irony that in the, the self described foremost capitalist nation in the world, we essentially have socialized professional sports, right? Uh, A team like Las Vegas, God bless them, which has for, well, for many, many seasons out of the last two decades, really been poor Um, and finishing last in in their division still gets to save share revenue with the top performing teams they can't fail whereas in the premier league in england if you fail one year you're relegated down to the next to the next level
1: and it's a dog fight it's, and it's no joke
2: yeah
0: um it's a 3-3 swap every year right
2: it depends on the leagues but at, at the top level yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. So it's wild, right? Yeah, it's a hell of an investment if you can get mm-hmm. a team.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a <laughs> it's a constantly winning game.
2: So I mean, there's competition weekend to weekend, but really, you can't lose if yeah. you own a professional franchise. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get relegated. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> you get to, and then they try to level the field a bit, with mm-hmm. the uh, with the draft thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you play terribly, you get number one pick. <laughs>
2: Which is sort of weird, yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah,
1: yeah, and it's
0: I mean c- kind of the point to the point we were making earlier too wh- if your team gets relegated drastic loss in your financial investment in right. that circumstance, right, your team could be worth millions, like and then you go down a league and you're you know what's the value of that team anymore, but in That's right. in the American football you're constantly going up and it's protected by the league because money's coming in, merchandise gets sold, you know, all that stuff.
2: Well, what Nick will will tell you also is that if it were only, if it were only that some of these giant teams, when they drop down one division, stay there and then come back up, sometimes they go down two and three and it might take 20 years to reemerge at the top level. Leeds, Leeds United. Yeah. So um, that will have an impact on the value of your investment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. So it, it is pretty cyber. <laughs> yeah. It's,
1: it's very strange to think. About. It is strange to think
2: about
3: it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: but yeah, we wanted to kind of end with this last question of, I mean, I think when I think of the field of kinesiology, I think very specifically about, like, the human body almost. Sure. Um, and it's so cool to hear that yours, your work has been widely applicable. Mm-hmm. So I think this question is a wide question. And if you were to give kind of a piece of advice to someone who is maybe in their early 20s mm-hmm. or just has an interest in pursuing some something in the realms of what your work has been in. Yeah. Like, what would you kind of advise? You know, um,
2: I mentioned earlier that I've been at St Mary's College for 25 years, and the the shape of my home department is not the same uh, as when I arrived. Um, so I had some role in shaping it as as it over these last two or three decades. Seems like a long time. Um, and so we've arrived at a place now. At a liberal arts college, remember, this idea of breadth of offerings. Um, We've arrived at a place now where we have three tracks for those that hypothetical person in their 20s. If they matriculate at St. Mary's College and they're interested in kinesiology, they have a decision to make. And it's which of the three tracks am I going to specialize in um, while I'm studying kinesiology? And your three choices are this. Exercise science that you started with. Um, with coursework like exercise physiology, for example, um, and students go on to work in a in a, in a, a broad range of professions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they graduate uh, with us in the exercise science track, uh, they might become exercise physiologists. Uh, maybe working over in John Muir Hospital, you know, if you come in and you have to do a stress test on a on a treadmill if you've had some chest pain or something that would be the person that would put you through that test. So, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, working in the allied medical field. Uh, so there's exercise science, lots of other, lots of other opportunities too. Then, um, this hypothetical, hypothetical 19 or 20 year old, um, might be interested in sport management. So if they're interested in a career in the sport industry, maybe they want to be an administrator in intercollegiate athletics, or maybe they want to work in professional sport. Um, that would be a track. So they, they take a lot of business uh, courses oh, as well as um, kinesiology classes. Mm. In the exercise science track, of course, they take a lot of science classes. They take you know anatomy and physiology and chemistry and biology coursework. Um, so, and, and a lot of our students do go on and work in uh, the NCAA or in professional sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our newest track is called health, health promotion. Um, and we have students who go and work for corporations uh, in employee wellness, a big thing, a big emerging field. Um, but we also have students who go out and work in nonprofits, doing things like I talked about earlier, uh, working for nonprofits in the community with at risk kids, mm-hmm. um, working um, with groups like Kaiser Permanente. In, in, in their employee wellness, those kinds of things. So it's really... now it's not like that everywhere. It's not like that everywhere. Um, some places, some universities, if you're studying kinesiology, it's, um, it might be uh, a teacher training track will predominate and so they're training physical education teachers for the public and private schools. Um, some places only do exercise science so they're training people to go on and be physical therapists. Mm-hmm. So, so I really like what we have. We have this sort of three pronged approach. So, if a student comes in uh, and they're one of those three, there's a there's a home home for them, and I like that because um, I have eclectic interests, and I think that would have that would that would have suited me as an undergrad. I would like to have tried out things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know where I would have settled. If I had those three choices, I'm not sure.
1: That's so funny to think about too, just how like your life has been everywhere. And so going into the one field that you really specialize in, yeah. you like really enjoy that there are three options.
2: Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah that's cool, right? Yeah, it and, is. And,
1: and Nick, uh, as you know,
2: and we talked about briefly, I also, though I teach in my home department, right? of course. But, um, I teach in two other programs at the college as well. There's that January term thing,
3: mm-hmm.
2: get to travel. Yeah, My wife thinks I'm a lunatic traveling <laughs> in Europe with 20 undergraduates. But anyway, um, there's, there's the January term program, which is so cool. Honestly, it's, it's wonderful. It's January. you you know, it is it, Southern Europe, but still it can be cold. Um, and then the collegiate seminar program, that great books, uh, program is just, just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Back
0: to the, it being quite interesting how that, you know, moving all over the place, getting exposed to a ton of different things, Yeah. you're very much in one spot, but you're all over the place, exposing your mind <laughs> to many different things yeah. in a very similar way yeah. through yeah. seminar, through Jan term, through your I mean, kinesiology in general, just like you stated, has such a wide variety. I mean, I, I went to Sonoma State, my undergrad's kinesiology. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, we had – I don't know if we had the business management style track, mm-hmm. but we did a exercise science, yep. kind of like a pre-physical education teacher yep. uh, credentialing track.
2: Very traditional. And yeah.
0: then mine, which was health and wellness, which is kind of the right. um, health like promotion. In, in yeah. health promotion track. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's yeah. interesting how you've kind of – Gravitated towards things that allow you to consistently be kind of like your eclectic self in all these different categories.
2: Well, I think that um, you know that moment, twenty five, twenty six, whatever it was years ago, that moment when I started at Saint Mary's College was so important because um, I th- I think that I'm a good fit with a liberal arts uh, college. Yeah, you know, with that. the the breadth of offerings the students would say that we forced them to take a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) but um, with those it it just fits it feels like home yeah Mm -hmm. it's been cool
1: that's awesome Awesome. yeah Yeah, thanks so much this has been really cool to hear your story and
2: thanks for coming over guys absolutely
1: yeah we're grateful that you had us over So. awesome Wow, what an
0: amazing conversation. Nick and I both really appreciated the perspective Dean brought to our conversation. If you wanna continue to get updates on when Nick and I share another video, make sure you follow us on social media. And if you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean the world to us if you would like and subscribe to our channels. Thanks so much, see you next time.